It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Over 1.2 billion Muslims, or one in five people on the planet, read the Quran as the sacred word of God. Syed Hossein Nasser has written, The Quran is the constant companion of Muslims in the journey of life. Its verses are the first sounds recited into the ears of the newborn child, and its verses are usually the last words that a Muslim hears upon the approach of death. In between these moments, the life of a Muslim is replete with the presence of the Quran. Dr. Nasser is the editor-in-chief of The Study Quran. It's a new translation of the holy book with notes and commentary. General editors Joseph Lombard, Maria Daycake, Kaner Dogley, along with assistant editor Muhammad Rustam, spent over a decade on this project. So in this episode, Maria Daycake and Joseph Lombard joined me to talk about the study Quran, which is coming out in November of 2015 from Harper One. Questions and comments about this and other episodes of the Maxwell Institute podcast can be sent to mipodcast at byu.edu. Maria Daycake and Joseph Lombard, welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast today. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Yes, we're talking about the new study Quran that's coming out from Harper One. It's coming out in November. It's a brand new translation of the Quran, and both of you worked as general editors on that project. So I wanted to begin by talking about how you first came to to encounter the Quran and uh, and, and how that's changed your life, uh, your faith and your scholarship. So let's start with Maria. Yes, I was myself raised uh, Roman Catholic and went through all Roman Catholic schooling and so had a very extensive introduction and, and familiarity, of course, with the Bible, biblical text, which I learned in school and I um, heard at Mass and other religious services. But when I was in college, I became very interested in Islam, mostly by way, actually, of, of Middle East politics. I was a government major, and I began studying Arabic, and I began studying a little bit about the Islamic world. And I was taking Arabic classes, although just beginning, and I decided, you know, I really should pick up a copy of this Quran and um, understand what it says or try to understand what it says. I'd heard so much about it but hadn't read it. And so I picked up a translation, of course, because my Arabic was not yet good enough to read the Quran. I'd only just begun learning. And um, picked it up and began reading, and I read till about the middle of the second uh, surah, which is, you know, a significant chunk <laughs> uh, into, into the Qur'an. Um, and I was really very taken with it, very struck by it, in part because there is such a sense of the immediacy of the voice of the Qur'an. When one reads the Bible or hears the Bible, with some exceptions, of course, it, it is often a work of, um, of narrative, telling stories, um, of course, spiritual stories, important stories, uh, but really told in that form, different kinds of narrative. But the Quran was really more of um, the, the text itself, as I read it, felt like a voice calling out directly to me. And that is something that not just I have noticed, of course, very commonly understood quality or feature of the Quran is that uh, it does address its audience often very, very directly. And that struck me. It was, it was very unusual for me. And 
um, it was very compelling, in all honesty. But at the same time, it was also a little disturbing to me because I had been I had been raised Catholic, and I, um, you know, for a while put it away after that. But but not too long uh, after I picked it back up again, and and after reading more of the Quran, I decided to go ahead and read um, some uh, biographies of the Prophet Muhammad, a little bit about the founding of the Muslim community and the expansion of Islam. And that really began my interest in Islam, and so and and I eventually uh, embraced Islam myself. So in many ways, the Quran was the opening of that door uh, to to Islam for me. How about you, Joseph? My story is somewhat different than uh, than Maria's. I came from a background as an Episcopalian. I was active in church growing up, and like Maria, I had uh, extensive exposure to the Bible. Uh, my father was a Sunday school teacher. I acted in church plays, forgot my lines, and all of that fun stuff. And then when I became Muslim, I actually uh, became Muslim more through the presence of other Muslims that I knew, and also through an understanding of the person of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And then it was after I became Muslim that I really started reading the Qur'an in depth. And, uh, and so the Qur'an, you might say, although of course it's the foundation and center axis of the faith in many ways, it wasn't necessarily my first experience of Islam. And then I started to read it more actively. I wasn't even taking Arabic at the time, so I really read it in translation. I was reading the Yusuf Ali translation and the uh, the Muhammad Marmaduke Pickthall translation. Those were the two that I had an experience with. But one thing that struck me is the way in which the Quran moves around from topic to topic. It's much different than the text of the Bible. It's more of a, an intimate conversation. And as one penetrates more deeply and fully, into the text. It's just like when one gets to know an individual more and one can kind of understand how all of the shifts in conversation continue to relate to one another. And that experience was something that I, I think is something I continue on uh, to this day as I've learned Arabic and now experience the text in the Arabic language rather than, uh, rather than, uh, than in English. As one goes further and further, every experience of the book really, really is a deepening of one's relationship, uh, not just with the Word of God, but with uh, with God, God's self. So both of you have have had personal um, encounter with the Quran that's affected your religious life, uh, and you've also dedicated your your life of of scholarship to the Quran as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the makeup of the Quran itself. Um, a little bit about its origin, how it was revealed and recorded, and then how it's laid out for people who haven't yet read from the Quran. Uh, it differs from the Bible, in uh, Joseph, as you mentioned, in in, in jumping around, and, and um, so let's talk about that. Uh, Maria, why don't you start? All right. the The Quran itself, of course, is a, a scripture. It's often referred to as a scripture, but it is really primarily an oral body of revelation. It is revealed to the Prophet Muhammad orally or verbally, and he himself being traditionally illiterate according to the Islamic 
uh, according to Islamic teachings and Islamic reports, uh, taught it to his followers also orally, and it's only much later that it comes to be written down. And in many ways, this accounts for the that feature or quality I was talking about before, where it feels like a conversation. You feel like it's engaging you. Uh, you don't feel like it's telling you a story. When you read the Quran, you feel like it's it's telling you something about yourself or, or, or asking you to think uh, about yourself. And so that, but that immediacy comes very much or is very much related to the manner in which the Quran was revealed. So Islamic tradition teaches that the Prophet Muhammad grew up in Mecca, which was a primarily pagan or idolatrous culture that um, believed in one, seems to have believed in one overarching creator God whom they called Allah. Um, Prophet Muhammad's father was Abdullah, the servant of Allah. So the name as a, as a name of God was already there. But still they worshipped other gods as well. And the tradition says that the Prophet Muhammad did not participate in this. And as a young man, a young adult, he would go off and meditate in caves in the mountains outside of Mecca. We don't know exactly what he did, but the tradition again tells us that he was inherently a monotheist, a Hanif, someone who followed an Abrahamic form of monotheism, one that was neither Jewish nor Christian. And on one of the, um, in one of the time, one of his retreats, you might say, into the cave, it's said that in the middle of the night, uh, one of the last 10 nights of Ramadan, one of the reasons Ramadan is such a sacred month, um, the angel Gabriel came to him and came to him actually in a rather, a, a rather violent manner, even grabbing him uh, some accounts say grabbing him by the neck or grabbing him by the shoulders and, and shaking him and saying to him, recite or read in Arabic, ikra. And the prophet responds, uh, makra, um, uh, meaning either I don't read or what should I read? Uh, and, and so, um, depending on how you translate it. But in any case, this, he continues, the, the, the angel continues to command him to recite until uh, the angel finally uh, recites the first five verses that are revealed to the prophet. Uh, and again, these verses are very uh, general. They're making him aware of the existence of God who created human beings, who taught them what they know. And, um, and then the angel left. And Muhammad ran out of the cave, uh, terrified as uh, one might after an experience like that. Uh, and it said, you know, immediately ran down the mountain and saw the angel on the horizon, who then identified himself to to the Prophet Muhammad as the angel Gabriel, who seems to have been someone already familiar to the Prophet Muhammad and maybe to the people of Mecca in general, as part of um, traditions of, of Judaism and Christianity that circulated throughout Arabia. And in any case, he still was concerned and afraid, and he came back home terrified and shaking, and the Quran recounts uh, this indirectly, uh, or makes mention of this, and it's really his wife, Khadija, who calms him down, who tells him that this is not something evil or satanic, you're not insane or possessed by jinn. Uh, which was something that was commonly discussed uh, in Arabia at that time. And uh, in fact, I don't know what this is, she said, but this must be something good because I know your character, Muhammad. I know you're a good person. Um, and eventually, uh, after he received more revelations, uh, he came to understand, uh, as well as talking with some people 
predominantly uh, Khadija's cousin, Waraka, uh, who was a Christian, talking with some other people and coming to realize that the messages he were he was receiving were indeed from God, and gradually understanding that they uh, were very much connected to the traditions of Judaism and Christianity with which he was at least somewhat familiar. So it was an oral revelation initially, uh, a recitation, recite, uh, Gabriel uh, instructed Muhammad. Uh, this became a book. Joseph, why don't you give a little bit of the history about that? Because that occurred, uh, for the most part, after the death of the prophet. Is that right? Yes, it did. It said that during the life of the prophet, there were several companions who did write down parts of the Quran on parchment or on the uh, shoulder blades of dead camels, camel bones, or on date leaves and things like this. But most people could not read and write. And of course, writing materials weren't uh, prevalent at that time. So it was mostly an oral tradition. And upon the death of the prophet, there was no official collection of the Quran. It is said that every year, the angel Gabriel would come to the prophet, peace be upon him, and would review the Quran and that the order in which they would review the Qur'an every year was the order in which we now have it um, today. So when you go to a single surah of the Qur'an, sometimes the verses from one surah will have actually been revealed years apart from each other. And it was only by that arrangement, when they would review it every year, that we have it in the form that uh, each chapter or surah came to be. In the year 634, under the Caliph Abu Bakr, the Muslims decided to collect the Qur'an all together in one place. Abu Bakr assigned Zayd bin Thabit with the task of getting everything together. It's said that before this, a few of the companions, four of them are mentioned by name, at least four companions, had large compendiums of the Quran, exactly how much they had gathered, we don't know because we don't have mm -hmm. those manuscripts with us. But there are several who had it. Nonetheless, Zayd bin Thabit was tasked with gathering everything together. And everything that he gathered together was then given to the Caliph Abu Bakr. And upon his death, it went to the next Caliph, Omar. And upon the death of Omar, it went to Omar's daughter, Hafsa, who was also a widow of the prophet. Then in the year 650, by this time Islam was in places like Basra and Kufa in Iraq, up in Damascus and everything. So you start to have a problem that if one person starts reading the Quran and reciting it somewhat incorrectly in Basra or Kufa or both places, then all of a sudden those errors will continue to be repeated and then you won't then people will start to lose the text of the Qur'an. So the Caliph Uthman wanted to unite the community on a single text. And he again assigned Zayd bin Thabit to collect the whole of the Qur'an and to, in a sense, cross-check it with everyone in the community and put it down in the right order. So the difference between what happened in 634 and what happened in 650 is that in 634, it's as if you gathered together all of your notes from a bunch of business meetings or from a class. You put them all in one place so that you knew that you had them. But then in 650, you gather them together 
you check them against other people's notes and you make sure that you have everything in the right order. And so this is what happened in 650 and that's what we call the consonantal skeleton of the text. It didn't have all of the dots that it has now to distinguish each of the consonants from one another, nor did it have all of the uh, dashes that would mark the vowels on the text. And this text was then written down in multiple copies and sent, at least four of them were sent out to the major cities of the Islamic empire at the time and probably more. And then the Caliph Uthman ordered that all of the other manuscripts of the Quran be disposed of. This didn't necessarily happen. Uh, in fact, we have the record that one of the uh, people who had collected um, a copy of the Quran before, Abdullah bin Mas'ud, objected that he had to burn, to, uh, to burn his, and he did not. So, but nonetheless, the whole of the community was from that point forward, according to Islamic histories, unified upon a single text. But it's important to note that from this point forward, the oral tradition was still central. It's said in Islamic tradition that the written tradition and the oral tradition are cross-checks against one another, and neither one of them can be taken as an independent authority, but the two of them together serve to reinforce one another, and it's because of the two reinforcing one another that Muslims believe we have the accurate um, copy of what was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad today. There was, in the news recently, uh, the University of Birmingham, they, they discovered a uh, uh, perhaps one of the oldest fragments of the of the Quran in the world. Yes. What do you think about that, Maria? Well, it's it's interesting because it the radiocarbon dating of course gives a range um, of dates and uh, the the range goes I believe from from 568 uh, to I think they said 658. And uh, and it's you know of course it's fascinating because if it is uh, from let's say you know between uh, in, from the 640s right or even the 630s, it represents a copy of the Quran that predates what the tradition tells us or when the tradition tells us the the Uthmani Codex that Joseph was just speaking about was was collected. And in that case, it gives us evidence uh, first of all that the that the that there were written Qurans uh, or Quranic parts of the Quran in any case that existed prior to the Uthmani Codex. I mean, prior to this, some of the earliest fragments that were found were from a few decades later, around the 670s. And so this is the earliest one that has been found. And I, it's, it's only two folios, and I've gone over it very you know, carefully. Of course, it is in, in a, a much older style. It's mm -hmm. a clearly Meccan style, very well known. Um, again, a continental text uh, without full dotting, and um, but but nonetheless, I compared it, you know, very carefully um, to the to the uh, the Quran we have now, and it is indeed uh, identical, except for the different ways in which you know the dots and and the vowels and so forth are marked. Um, and uh, it's you know one of the the issues that immediately then came up was people said yes, but it could also be earlier than that. Uh, in fact, it might even predate the Prophet Muhammad himself, which would um, uh, feed into certain 
uh, revisionist arguments uh, that some Quranic scholars have put forward that the Quran uh, drew upon earlier texts that were Christian, uh, perhaps in in origin. And you know, and and this might be in that sense, um, uh, or they might take this as possible evidence of that particular uh, point of view. But I point out a couple of things actually. That, uh, of course, there's a lot of issues, technical issues. I'm not really an expert in radiocarbon dating. Apparently, they've tested the paper uh, or the parchment rather than rather than the ink. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you know, parchment could be reused, right? It could Correct, be wiped yeah. clean. Right? So it, we don't know. Exa- it's, it's early, but we don't know. You know, we can't really pinpoint a date well enough to make a dramatic, um, um, you know, argument about the, this predating somehow the Prophet Muhammad. Um, but the other thing that's kind of interesting is that one of the pieces is from Surah Al-Kahf, the 18th surah of the Qur'an. And it's from a, a part, a story that's being told about uh, the companions of the cave, which is known in the Christian tradition as the seven sleepers of Ephesus, which is, of course, not a biblical tradition, but a Christian tradition. And there's something really unusual in that, in the retelling of that story that the Qur'an gives uh, in in the Christian account, uh, for example, it says that the sleepers slept for 300 years before being miraculously awakened. In the Quranic text, it says they slept for 300 years plus nine. And that's a very significant point because 309 years would be the lunar equivalent of 300 years in the solar calendar. Um, which means that this is not something that would have come from a Christian text. A Christian text would have uh, been using a solar calendar. Right. Um, this, this clearly is coming from a text um, written by people who have a lunar, um, who, who operate according to a lunar perspective, and therefore seems uh, very natively from Arabia at least. I'm glad you brought up the some of the polemical things that, that people would say about the origins mm. of the text because the the Quran actually has very interesting relationship to other scripture uh, the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian New Testament and the word Islam itself referring to submission to God it's rooted in uh, Abraham submitting uh, his will to God and 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 the Quran talks about people of the book which refers to Jews and and Christians uh, so I'm, I'm interested, Joseph, why don't you talk uh, about that element of things, about the Quran's relationship to the Bible? Well, the Quran presents itself as very cognizant of being a continuation of the same tradition as the uh, Hebrew scriptures and as the, uh, as the Gospels. It doesn't say New Testament itself. The four previous revelations that are mentioned by name in the Quran are what it refers to as the pages or scrolls of Abraham. And then it refers to uh, the Torah, and it refers to the Psalms being sent to David, and it refers to the Injil or gospel uh, that was with Jesus. But also it's important to note that Jesus is himself referred to in the Quran as a word of God. Um, and some have said that in that from a Quranic perspective, Jesus himself is, in a sense, the revelation. Now, the Quran says over and over again that it confirms that which came before and that the Prophet Muhammad is simply sent to confirm 
the message that previous messengers came and that in fact he brings nothing new. And so from a Quranic perspective, everything that's come through all of the prophets in all time is the same fundamental message. Nonetheless, the laws that different prophets have differ somewhat from time to time. You might say they fit more the circumstances in which people might find themselves at the time. And also the rites, or monastic, as the Quran calls them, are somewhat different within each religion. So one might say that it's a presentation where the form of the religions will differ, but the fundamental message of the religions is the same. Now in history, of course, there are many aspects of it that we can't necessarily um, assess because we don't have lots of the archaeological information that we might want from a, a historical critical perspective. Uh, but this is how the Quran itself presents its relationship with the previous Abrahamic scriptures. With some of the stories that it interacts with, for example, uh, the figure of Noah appears in the Quran. And and a lot of Christians that read the Bible today uh, read that story in, in sort of a fundamentalist register where they view this story as uh, literal history where there was a global flood that wiped out all of humankind except for Noah and his family. Uh, does it show up similarly in the Quran? Is that the same type of story? Are there differences? It is different, in particularly in the sense that it doesn't have that universal, completely catastrophic um, element that you have in the in the biblical story. And the story is told in more than one place, as many of these stories are told um, and and told for different purposes. the The story of Noah is really a story in the Quran, I should say, is really a story about his particular people his group, his qawm in Arabic, um, you know, it could be his city, his uh, uh, tribe in a sense, where whatever, or his town, his small group of people where he was living, uh, well, we don't know how small it was, but it isn't universal. It's his particular people uh, that are, are wiped out by the flood. And his story is often told in a sequence of other stories about people who, who, to whom God sent a prophet. Uh, but then they did not listen to the prophet, they rejected the teaching of the prophet, they refused to heed his warnings, uh, and they were wiped out by earthquakes or um, other kind of devastating, uh, what would seem to be natural uh, events. And so the story of Noah is one of many of these stories that is told, and they're all told in a very similar way. So it's, it's, it's rendered in the context of other prophetic stories and in a way that, again, um, reinforces the idea that God has sent many messengers to humanity. He sends them always with the same essential message that there is one God and that is the only God that they should uh, listen to and they need to behave ethically and morally, and, uh, and when, they're, when those prophets are rejected, then disaster eventually comes upon their people. And I, I, you know, in, in a sense, it's, um, you know, I, 
when I was, I, this is kind of a side story, but, you know, having children, we have children, you know, and you get sort of baby things. They always have this little Noah's Ark theme. You know, we had Noah's Ark themed, mm-hmm. you know, stuffed animals and sheets. And I actually, when you actually had Noah's read, Ark wallpaper when I was yeah. there. <laughs> <laughs> when you I read the biblical yeah. account, it's terrifying. Yeah. You know? it's, it's not a children's story at all <laughs> in many ways. Uh, so, so the chronic account is in a sense less drastic and it has a, it, it, it's telling is it's the purpose of its telling is different. Do you think most Muslims read it as a, as a literal historical account, or are there some Muslims who will read it as more allegorical? I mean, you know, contemporary scholarship shows that it has resonances with the Enuma Elish and other uh, Babylonian stories and things. Are there Muslims who have more of a revisionist approach where they'll accept the Quran as revealed, but they'll look at a story like when it's talking about Noah as being um, relating something that's actually not not explicitly historical or anything like that? The Quran is a very frustrating book for a historian. It's really difficult to find uh, history and build it in that way. And it's one of the things that actually helps, you might say, prevent a literalist reading of the stories of some of these biblical figures. You know, to go back to what Maria was saying about the story of Noah, it's really a very good example. You have really very little discussion of Noah's uh, life of the building of the ark. There's yeah, no discussion. the specifics, like how many cubits exactly. to make it and stuff. Exactly. <laughs> Genesis 6, you have this discussion of the specifics. And then Genesis 9 tells the story after the flood. There's no, t- there's no discussion of that in the Quran. Rather, what you really have in the Quran is this discussion. It's said from, for in the Quran, it says that Noah called his people for almost a thousand years. And then God sent the flood. So really, in a sense, it's a story of how incredibly patient and merciful God is. That Noah called his people in one way, and they rejected that way. Then Noah went and he called his people in another way, they rejected him again. Then Noah went and called his people in another way, and he kept on doing it, and he kept on doing it, and he kept on doing it. And then, after more than 900 years, he finally said, okay, God, these people are misguided. Go ahead, have your way with them. But, I mean, if you really understand how long it is, and you even look and you read the language, many, there's a tendency sometimes when people read the Quran, you read phrases like, you know, if only they were thankful, or if only they would think, or that they might, re- that they might reflect, and things like this. And people seem to read it as if God is, is angry. But really, you know, if you read it as God is loving and God is merciful, it's more like a parent who would say for a child, if only he would think, if only they would reflect, they would see what I'm trying to do for them. And this comes out in so many of the Quranic stories. And I think Noah is, is, is a very good example of that. So while all of those stories that you might have in the Near Eastern milieu, it reflects those. Muslims don't see that as in any way taking away from the fact that it might be revelation. That actually even contributes to it because from a Quranic perspective, God sends guidance to every single human collectivity. And so for other people to have known about this story, for similar stories to have been within civilization in many different ways would actually fit in to the overall Quranic understanding 
of the relationship between the divine and the human. Yeah, and it's this recurring story. And Joseph, you actually write about this in one of the essays in the in the study Quran, the Quranic view of sacred history and other religions, and you kind of situate the Quran as relating stories of prophets going all the way back to Adam. And and there's even a sort of pre-existent Quran that can that uh, that that was revelatory, but it's this cycle of of to, to use Mormons talk about a cycle of apostasy and restoration, and and it seems to be that 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 is a, a recurring theme within the Quran that that God is patient, that God uh, sends revelation through a particular figure. Uh, Ultimately, that revelation is somehow discarded or or disobeyed, and then and then th- things uh, come to a head, and then they have to start over again. And then uh, the Prophet Muhammad then uh, is seen as sort of the seal of the prophets, kind of the final uh, in, uh, human manifestation or or person who would receive that message. Is that right? That he's he's kind of viewed as the the end point. Yeah, Maria. Um, being the seal of the prophet, yes. you you talked about how one of the benefits of the of the the Quran is it kind of shows how God is revealing things for particular circumstances, right? So Muhammad is addressing uh, his contemporaries in terms of their their uh, paganism and 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 calling them back to devotion to the one God, and and but him being the seal of the prophet then kind of locks Muslims into that text. Then that there's not an expectation of further revelation, correct? That's right. Not well, certainly not in that particular way not in the sense of sending an actual prophet. Um, and in, in some ways, I think that, I mean, of course, this has been the basis um, for, uh, you know, the, in principle, Muslims can accept uh, religions that, that came before, but it's harder for them to accept religions that came after if they're completely new in the sense that, uh, the, you know, the, the idea that there is this kind, that this is sort of the final time that God will speak uh, to humanity. Um, but that doesn't mean, in, in a sense, and this is certainly something I find when I read the Quran. Uh, there's a way in which the Quran continues to uh, to be revealing, one might say. And um, just quickly to go back to the idea of the stories, one of the things that the the Quran says at the end of the sixth surah, right before the surah where seventh surah, where many of these stories, as I was saying, beginning with Noah, are told in sequence. Uh, it talks about human beings being made the um, sort of people who succeed one another continuously on the earth. And so, you know, one group of people is given a message and they don't listen to the message. They're wiped out. Another group of people is given a chance, you might say, and, and maybe they succeed for a while or they don't succeed at all. And they're wiped out. And then there's another group of people. And, you know, after relating these stories, the Quran will often say, you know, well, that's what they did. You're not going to be asked about what they've done. Mm-hmm. And so it's not doing this in order to tell you something so much about the past, but it's a way of saying, now it's your turn. <laughs> you know, now you're the Khalifa. Now you're the, the generation that has inherited the earth. And, and how are you going to respond? And so there's a way in which, again, because of the, the, the immediacy of the way the Quran uh, is revealed, there's a sense that it does continue to speak directly to every uh, new generation. Let's talk about some of the other uh, main themes of the Quran. And, and Maria wrote uh, one of the essays here that that I enjoyed that's kind of about uh, social justice and ethics in the Quran. And one of the things, Maria, that you point out at the beginning of that is that it's been difficult for people to wrap their heads around 
what sort of ethics are promoted in the Quran because the Quran is not a systematic treatise, as you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, that it's it comes in waves, it, it, it comes in flashes of insight, and, and different points are being made. There's complexity there. So it's quite easy, I think, for people to selectively proof text from the Quran, find a, 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 an, a surah or an ayat that sort of seems very violent or very uh, uh, strange and to kind of pull that out of its context and present that as, as the message of the Quran. So this essay that you write is sort of trying to complicate that and, and make it more difficult to, to, to read it so shallowly. Uh, so talk about some of the themes. Um, some that you write about in terms of social justice include uh, patriarchy, the treatment of women and violence and things like that. So um, I'd like to hear more from you on that, uh, on those right. subjects. Sure. Um, First of all, let me just say that one of the reasons why this is a, an essay on uh, on Islamic ethics and not necessarily on, on law per se, uh, there is a, a very widespread misperception that the Quran is a book of law. And this misperception is based, I think, to the in, in part on the fact that Islam as a religion is a very legally based religion. And of course, the Sharia uh, is extraordinarily important uh, to Muslims. It it's, it uh, refers to not just law, but in fact to their whole way of life. So for that reason, there is this sense, well, you know, the Sharia is based on the Qur'an, which of course uh, it is, uh, and so therefore the Qur'an must be a book of law, when in fact that's not the case. Um, there's only about 200 verses or so of the Qur'an that give distinct legal rulings. Uh, whereas there are over 6,200 verses in the Qur'an itself. Uh, and the other thing is, is the legal texts where you do find legal rulings tend, are, are in the Medinan verses almost exclusively, with the exception of some dietary laws that appear in, in Meccan verses. But almost all of the rulings that have to do with social issues, marriage or divorce, family relations, um, um, criminal law, um, economic or commercial practices, and so on. All of those things are found in the Medinan verses because when the Prophet Muhammad was in Medina, that's when he was not just in Mecca. He was he was just the leader of a small um, uh, persecuted religious minority. But once he gets to Mecca, he very shortly becomes, in effect, uh, the 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 ruler of that city, and so is in a position, therefore, to create and structure a society based on those principles that the Quran was teaching. And so, uh, and the Medinan verses are, of course, it's not perfectly even, but the Medinan verses tend to be concentrated toward the first part of the Quran. And so, for example, the second, third, and fourth surahs, which are all very, very long, some of the longest uh, surahs in the Quran, uh, they are um, Medinan. And so these uh, Medinan verses, so when people pick up the Quran, I should say, and they read from the beginning of the Quran, they might see, even then it's going to be interspersed with other things, but they might see more law and legal rulings than they would if they actually started from the back mm -hmm. of the Quran. I often tell people to start from the back because that's where you find, you might say, the moral and ethical principles that are actually far, you know, referenced far more often and really are the context in which these legal rulings have to be understood. 
And so in the essay, I do begin by saying that, you know, you may agree or disagree with the particular rulings that you find in the Quran or the way marriage or divorce or family relations are structured and so on. You may very much disagree with those. Uh, but at the same time, it's important to understand that they are framed within an ethical context and their purpose is indeed um, uh, moral in nature. It's about constructing a society where everyone is taken care of, where people are not exploited, where uh, there is unity and harmony to the extent possible. These are uh, where, where everyone is bound by certain rights and responsibilities. And this is a kind of the framework in which many of these laws have to be uh, understood. And of course, the very important issue of justice and charity and um, generosity and forgiveness. Uh, these things are constantly reiterated in the Quran. And at the same time, of course, the Quran is revealed in uh, the seventh century, a time when throughout pretty much the known civilized world at that time, uh, things like patriarchy or slavery were widespread. Islam um, doesn't bring patriarchy, it doesn't bring slavery to a community that had not known those things, but in fact is coming into a situation where those things are understood to be normative, perhaps even unchangeable. And, and so um, although that uh, structure, uh, I know there have been a lot of um, Islamic uh, feminists or female writers, may not um, consider themselves feminists, who um, would argue that the Quran is ultimately not patriarchal. And I think indeed it is trying to undermine to some extent, uh, well, at least to, uh, to amend the patriarchal structure such that it is uh, not so unjust for women. Um, but nonetheless, that patriarchal element in a few places uh, comes out fairly clearly. Um, but again, to I think what's really important when you look at the Quran, you, you have to look at it on the one hand honestly and look at what it says, but you also have to look at it holistically. Uh, and there are many places where uh, the Quran seems particularly concerned to uh, uphold the rights or to, it wouldn't have even been seen as rights at that time, but to amend and uh, improve the situation of women uh, at that time and to prevent particular kinds of forms of exploitation and abuse that they would otherwise have been regularly subject to. That's Maria Daycake. She's an associate professor and chair of the Religious Studies Department at George Mason University. She specializes in Islamic thought, Quranic studies, Shiite and Sufi traditions and women's issues. Uh, she's also co-director of Interdisciplinary Islamic Studies Program at George Mason. And recently she worked together with Joseph Lombard and others uh, on the study Quran, uh, the assist with the translation, commentary, and, and other matters within that book. Um, Joseph, I wanted to turn to you to talk a little bit about the translation of this particular uh, edition, uh, the makeup of the Harper One edition, how long it took, and, and some of the translation issues that, that cropped up along the way, because there's a saying that goes, the Quran cannot be translated. The true Quran is in Arabic. Any translation is simply a translation of that true Quran. Uh, and so let's talk about some of those issues that come up when you're producing a translation. Well, that's a very good question. I don't know if one could really say that it's one of the most difficult books to translate, considering that you have a new translation coming out just about every year now. 
Um, <laughs> but uh, in our translation in particular, when we first set out to do the text, we thought that we were going to use an existing translation and write our commentary upon it. In other words, we had the model that you have with most, not all, but most of the study Bibles that are out there. Yeah, like the Jewish Annotated New Testament uses the NRSV. So they just, the, yeah. the Jewish Annotated New Testament uses the NRSV. The Jewish Study Bible uses uh, pre-existing translations. Yes. The same with the, the HarperCollins Harper Study Collins. Bible, yep. Oxford Annotated, etc. But uh, as we went through all of the translations. This was about 10 years ago that you started this, right? Yeah, we, we started this. Uh, we first started this in January of 2006. Okay, so you're um, going through these translations sort of trying to decide. Yes, and then we met and we were all at a conference together and we made the fateful decision uh, that there weren't any that we could use as a text for a study Quran, what we wanted was something that is accurate, consistent, and eloquent. We actually developed a, an Excel word chart in which every word of the Quran is located and every commonly recurring phrase is found so that we could track how we were translating everything and keep track of our, our workflow. We didn't use this to make sure that everything was always the same. In fact, what we used it for is to register when we had agreed that certain words in different contexts would need to be rendered somewhat differently. Um, but we did this to make sure that we had consistency and to keep track of agreements that we had made. The workflow was that each of the general editors, myself, Maria, and Janer Dale, who's at the College of the Holy Cross, we would each translate a part of the Quran, so each of us was responsible for about a third, and then we would share that with the other general editors. We would go through a process where we would get the feedback from the other general editors, then sometimes discuss a few of the issues, differences that we might have. And after we had gone through that discussion, then a final edited version of that, with some notes regarding disagreements that might still persist, would be sent to the editor-in-chief. He would go through that, and then we would get that back, and then we would again, the primary translator would go over that part, and if there were any important editorial things or any differences of opinion had been settled, report that back to everyone else. But that was just the first step. Then once we had everything down, and we really got even deeper into it when we were going into the commentary, we found even more inconsistencies. And we ended up developing about hundreds of translation memos that would have everything in Arabic and in English and all the different instances of it so that we could go through it and sit down and make an agreement about how we would need to work with particular phrases and particular words so that even if we couldn't have a direct equivalence in each instance, there would be consistency in how we were dealing with particular terms. Um, this was really, this by the way, is I think part of what does set this translation apart. If you go through the history of Quran translation, it is very different from the history of Bible translation in that almost every translation that's out there is an individual effort of the Quran that is. And now I think, I hope that we are starting a trend where translations of the Qur'an will be done by academic committees. 
And hopefully there'll be more translations done by academic committees because there are certainly other ways to do it than, uh, than what we did. But we do think that what we have developed is a translation that works very well for a study Quran, especially because it is consistent and accurate throughout. With this translation, uh, and with any translation from the original, there's a sense that much of the original can, can be lost in translation because one, one of the things Muslims appreciate most about the Quran is its beauty, its structure. It's, it, that itself serves as a sign of its, of, of its being a revelation to Muhammad, the fact that this person couldn't have sat down and wrote this this document, this is something that was revealed. So what are some of the syntax and grammar things that, that get lost in a translation from Arabic to a language like English? Well, I would say that in that a lot of it has to do with the richness of the Arabic vocabulary. And so, you know, words have multiple meanings and those meanings, um, you know, there's a, a tradition that some commentators will say that certainly uh, mystical commentators will say the Quran can have the Quranic verses, each verse can have many, many interpretations. Uh, and any grammatically accurate interpretation um, is one thing that that God meant to communicate through that through that verse. But um, I can give you um, you know one example we had there's a, a word, um, method, which can mean example, likeness, parable. <laughs> mm. It has a wide range of meanings. And, you know, we, we did try, as Joseph explained, to be as consistent as possible so that, you know, people would be able to read this and say or see even people who, you know, let's say didn't have access to the Arabic and wanted to make a study of how a particular word or term is used in the Quran. They could at least do it, uh, a study at some level because we would try to be consistent in the terminology. Methyl is one of those words that completely defeated us <laughs> in this. Um, and we realized that we struggled to find one English word that would fit all these contexts and it simply, it, it did not. But you see that already says something about the differences in language. There is a single word in Arabic that connotes in the mind of someone who knows Arabic all of those things simultaneously. And so, and that, there's no way to represent that in English. Uh, another example, another quick example, there's a word that the Quran uses, which is ta'wil. And ta'wil is usually understood to mean interpretation. And in discussing the Quran, as, as the history of chronic interpretation developed, sometimes people made a distinction. Uh, ta'wil was one of the earliest words that was used for this process of uh, interpreting the Quran, and that's because it is a Quranic term itself. Um, and an important one. Uh, uh, but there came to be a distinction between two terms, tafsir, which is what is usually used to, for Muslim commentaries or interpretations of the Quran, exegesis. Uh, and tafsir really means to explain something in detail. Ta'wil is a word that means, it, its etymological meaning is to bring something back to its origin. Or to know how something is going to turn out in the end. And so this term is used uh, in many ways um, in the Quran, I should say in different ways in the Quran, but always it includes, the, the term always means both interpretation 
and the fullness of the meaning of something that might only make itself known over time. So, for example, uh, the story of the prophet Joseph, which will be familiar to Jewish and Christian audiences, he has these dreams in the Quran, just as in the biblical account, that, of course, for you know, foreshadow what's going to happen to him and to his brothers in the end. But he doesn't know what they mean at the beginning, right? He only knows what those dreams mean when everything comes to fruition and he ends up uh, in charge in Egypt and his brothers come to visit him and so on. Only then does the full understanding of that dream, the full interpretation of those dreams um, are made known to him. But it's also the wheel in the sense it's the way those things turn, the full meaning that unfolds over time. And so in the beginning of Surah 3, it says that the, the, the ta'wil of the Qur'an is known only to God, or in some readings, known only to God and those who are firmly grounded in knowledge, which can mean God, it's only God or God and those people who know the true interpretation of the Qur'an. But it can also mean they're the only ones who know the fullness of the meaning that will be uh, revealed over time. So again, it's a word that in order to appreciate what it means within the context of the Quran, you need to have its full semantic range, mm -hmm. you might say, naturally in your head. And we try to do that through the commentary. We would point these things out in the commentary. Um, but in that sense, it's still going to be fragmented in a way that it wouldn't be for someone who understands the language uh, and, and all of these meanings would be present to them. Not only the, the polyvalence of some of these words, there's also just the baggage that some words carry. Joseph mentions this in his, his uh, chapter on the Quran and translation, and that's the word din. Is that how it's pronounced? Dean. Dean. So that's religion. And, you know, religion from the Western context, they're, they're talk about trying to, to find the roots of that word. And some people rooted in the idea to, to treat something carefully. Some people rooted in the idea to bind. So we're bound to God. We bind ourselves to God. Religion, we're tied to God. But the, the Arabic root for deen, it kind of comes from a totally, well, not a totally different, but a different kind of, uh, of place where it talks about being to owe a debt, to be obedient, to follow. Human beings are in debt to God. So even not only do some of these words just have multiple meanings, but there's also instances of words where in English they carry this baggage. People hear religion, they think an organized church or a, uh, you know something like that. Whereas uh, throughout the Quran, that same word could actually be talking about just owing a debt to God, being obedient to God, um, perhaps even pointing to the idea of submitting to God. Um, so. There's so many things that, that I wish we had more time to talk about, but I, I wanted to also ask about the um, one of the things that, Joseph, you write in this essay uh, is uh, the Quran cannot be translated on the linguistic plane. That you're, <laughs> you're writing this uh, at, you know, in a book that is a translation of the Quran. It cannot <laughs> be translated on the linguistic plane. The only true translation of the Quran possible is of an existential order. Only those who have assimilated the revelation or immersed themselves in its teachings so thoroughly that its meanings speak through their thoughts, words, and deeds can be said to represent an effective translation of the noble book. It, it, it seems to me that you're saying here, rather than being so concerned about translating the Quran, the, the reader should actually seek to be translated by the Quran, by, by taking in its message, its, its, its ideals, its teachings. 
Yeah, that's really what the Quran tells one over and over again as one goes over the Quran. You know, there's a tradition uh, now where the Quran is memorized by many people throughout the Islamic world. But that's considered what we call in Islam a, uh, a, sufficiently, uh, a sufficient obligation, meaning that if there are people who are preserving the Quran, it's not something everybody has to do. But everybody who is a Muslim has to try to live in accord with the Qur'an to the best of their ability. And so over and over again, the Qur'an says, do you not understand? Do you not reflect? Do they not contemplate the Qur'an or do their hearts have their locks upon them? And the Qur'an will say in many instances, none understand this save those who are possessed of intellect. And every single time the Quran is challenging you to go deeper into its message, understand it more, and live in accord with it. It's said that during the life of the Prophet, many of the companions of the Prophet, they would only memorize 10 verses of the Quran at a time, and then they wouldn't memorize anything more until they had learned how to act upon and implement those verses that they had memorized. Once they knew how to implement them, then they would go and memorize 10 more verses. But this is something that to some degree you might say is, is uh, lost in the emphasis upon memorization that you find mm -hmm. in some parts of the Islamic world today. It's fascinating. Like you say, the, the idea is that this text is going, this, this book is going to translate you uh, in, in the process of engaging with it. Is, is this how most Muslims engage with the text? Do you, do you picture uh, uh, Muslims sitting down with the study Quran and, and, and reading through it and meditating upon it? Or how, how do Muslims usually encounter the text? With Christians, they'll sit down and read different chapters or they'll have favorite verses that they might memorize or, or uh, you know, do studies of different stories. How, how, how do most Muslims engage with the Quran itself? How do you see this translation being used? Well, I would say, first of all, um, as you may know, the basic content of the Muslim prayer are, uh, are passages or parts of the Quran. And so every Muslim has to memorize at least um, a certain number of, of small Quranic passages in order to be able to say their prayers properly. And so most Muslims will, um, will memorize, um, you know, a, a good number of verses so that they can repeat different verses or different passages, I should say, not just verses, but different passages uh, in their prayers. A lot of young children, when they're Muslim, uh, at a very early age, they will have to, what they'll call, read the whole Qur'an. And that's where they actually work on learning how to read, the to, to actually recite from, you know, looking at the text, how to recite the Qur'anic text. And sometimes that includes uh, memorization, and sometimes it's, it's simply learning how to read the entire uh, text. And, and one of the things uh, about Arabic, it's, I, I often say it's the only thing about Arabic that is easy, uh, is that it's phonetic. <laughs> and so uh, once you learn what the, the different consonants and vowels mean and so forth, uh, well, anyone who anyone can sit down and read the Quran, even if they don't know what it is saying. Right? They don't actually know its, its content necessarily. Uh, 
but at the same time, many Muslims will continue throughout their lives to read the Quran on a regular basis, not just in prayers, but also as a, maybe a regular practice to read a few pages a day uh, of the Quran during Ramadan. Uh, you, may, you may know that the Quran is, uh, Muslims have divided the Quran into 30 equal sections. Uh, in this way, people can read the entire Quran in a month. A lot of people like to do that during the month of Ramadan because it's the month in which the Quran was revealed. Um, but at the same time, I think there is, um, um, and for good traditional reasons, you might say, there is a lot of hesitance on the part of Muslims to engage entirely with the meaning of the text, whether by reading a translation or if they are capable of reading the Arabic text itself. And they feel that very much they should depend upon traditional scholars uh, for the interpretation of the Quran. I, I teach uh, a class on the Quran regularly at my university where I'm based in Northern Virginia where there's a huge Muslim community. And so when I teach courses on the Quran, usually 50 to 75% of the class come in one way or another from a Muslim background, whether or not they're observant. And um, if I, you know, if we're looking at a passage of the Quran, I'll often say to them, you know, what do you think this means? And, and I've gotten the response in the past, well, it's not for us to say what it means. Um, you know, we need to look at what the traditional commentators say uh, mm -hmm. that it means. And I think, you know, the, on the one hand, this is true, of course, you don't want sort of interpretive anarchy. Right. <laughs> uh, the Quran can't mean everything. Uh, but at the same time, um, you know, it, I, I do think that the Quran asks for its listeners and its readers to personally engage with the text. Um, there's a passage that says, why do you not contemplate this Quran? Right. Uh, so it's asking it's very directly asking the reader to do that. But there's a kind of hesitation because people are afraid that they'll interpret something incorrectly. And so one of the things that I hope that this will do is uh, now a Muslim can look at an English who, let's say, is not an Arabic uh, speaker or might be but can't access the traditional commentaries. They can look and they say, well, this is what how this what I think this verse means when I read it. Um, and now I can look at the commentary and I can say, what have the traditional commentators said about this? And they can see in, in some cases, I mean, in many cases, the, the, the interpretation, you know, is, is pretty uniform across the tradition. But in, in other, uh, for other verses, there might be a multitude of interpretations. And then they can look at that. They can engage with that. They can see that Muslims themselves uh, discussed and thought about what these verses might mean and didn't always come to the same conclusions. They can feel safe that there's a kind of guideline if they don't feel safe doing it on their own, that, that you know, I, I can look at what these traditional commentators say. But also, I think, in some ways, opens, up, opens it up for them to have a more personal engagement, more thoughtful and contemplative engagement with the text. Yeah, there's a sense in which this version, the study Quran itself, is 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 really presented to Muslims in particular, also for people of other faiths to get to know Islam better. But there was a decision made early on for uh, the scholars involved in the project to be believing Muslims, that that it would be a, uh, a project by believing Muslims. And Joseph, I, I wanted to have you expand on that a little bit, talk about the decision to include uh, only believing Muslims on that, and also the place of non-Muslims in, in scholarship about Islam in general. Well, I think the decision to have um, only Muslims on the project um, was that of the, uh, the editor-in-chief himself. And it's something that I agree with in large part. And the reason I agree with it is because uh, it really is um, 
it really is our responsibility to present Islam um, to non-Muslims and to the broader non-Arabic uh, reading Muslim audience, which is the vast majority of Muslims. Amy Childs Veen put this very well when I was attending a presentation that she did for the Jewish commentary on uh, the New Testament, when she said that reclaiming our history and retelling our story is our responsibility and our right, and that doing so counteracts many of the effects of colonialism. I think that everything that she is saying there as regards the Jewish tradition applies completely and even more so to the Islamic tradition. Thus far, there hasn't been the opportunity uh, for Muslims to fully, in a sense, tell their story within the Western context. There's too much noise around it. And I think that this volume will be an important um, step towards that. One of the things that we should reflect upon where we sit today is a very interesting point in history where English has quite unexpectedly become an international language of Islamic intellectual discourse. Mm. And therefore to have a study Quran that comes out in English is not just something that's important uh, within uh, English-speaking countries such as Australia, America, the UK, etc., but really has the potential for uh, important international impact. That's Joseph Lombard. He's a professor in the Department of Arabic and Translation Studies at the American University of Sharjah. And he's written and translated articles on and books on Islamic philosophy, Sufism, Quranic studies. And he's also served as an advisor for interfaith affairs to the Jordanian royal court. Together with Maria Daycake, they are general editors of the Study Quran from Harper One. You can read more about the Study Quran. You can download some uh, sample pages from it at thestudyquran.com. We'll take a brief break and be right back with the conclusion of this episode. According to the Maxwell Institute's new book, Schooling the Prophet, Joseph Smith wasn't merely the Book of Mormon's prophetic translator. He was also a student of that sacred record. Author Gerald E. Smith argues that the prophet was quietly influenced by one of the most important sources he knew, the Book of Mormon, on doctrine, priesthood, and temple matters. Don't miss the book Terrell Given says motivates readers to keep plumbing the Book of Mormon's riches. Learn more about Schooling the Prophet, how the Book of Mormon influenced Joseph Smith and the early restoration at bit.ly slash schoolingtheprophet and at amazon.com. It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Today, we're speaking with Maria Daycake and Joseph Lombard. Together, they worked as translators, commentary authors, and uh, as general editors for Harper One's Study Quran, which is coming out in November. You can read more about that book at thestudyquran.com. I've also put links up on the Maxwell Institute's website. Um, so I wanted to conclude this interview by going back to the beginning, uh, the opening surah of the Quran, which is called The Opening. And uh, and have uh, invite Joseph if if you would um, recite that and then have Maria uh, read the translation and and talk for a minute about this opening portion of of the text. So uh, Joseph, um, if you if you would, that would be great. I'm happy to do so with the one caveat that I am not a professional reciter. <laughs> and and there are like really professional reciters, right? I mean, there are even oh, competitions indeed. where yes. people uh, can can win awards. 
for for beauty, accuracy? What kind of things do they judge it on? Accuracy is the is first and foremost, uh, and then also there's also beauty as well. But but one of the main things is to be accurate and to know. Uh, the rules of recitation and then to be able to uh, to implement them uh, really perfectly. It's really very, very technical uh, to be able to uh, to recite the Quran uh, just right. Okay, so with that caveat, uh, this isn't a competition, so but it'll, you'll give us a really good idea of what this sounds like. So uh, here's the opening. Alhamdulillah <laughs> Thank you. That was that was excellent. Um, and then uh, Maria, why don't you read the translation of this? That uh, that who who did this one, by the way? Who did this translation? Joseph did. Oh, good. Okay, so Maria, read Joseph's translation then of of this opening surah. In the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful, praise be to God, Lord of the worlds, the compassionate, the merciful, master of the day of judgment. Thee we worship, and from thee we seek help. Guide us upon the straight path, the path of those whom thou hast blessed, not of those who incur wrath, nor of those who are astray. So that's the entirety of that opening surah. And what's interesting to me is you then include one, two, three, four, about seven uh, pages of commentary on that. And, And what's interesting is there are volumes that have been written about just this opening surah. So how did you decide what to fit in there, and we'll close by talking about some of your favorite elements of the commentary on this opening. Maria, why don't you start, and then we'll have Joseph. Well, could I actually say something, since I'm technically credited with writing the commentary on this. However, this, the commentary for this particular Sora was done a little bit differently than all the others. In all of the others, we would go off, and we would kind of do our thing, and look in the commentaries, and present it to everyone else after we'd finished the research and writing. For this one, since it was the opening one, the first thing that we did was we had a group discussion about what should be included. And then after we had that group discussion, I wrote the commentary. So it really, this particular commentary is more of a group endeavor uh, than, uh, than many of the other commentaries. And that said, how do you how do you decide how to boil it down? In addition to the commentary, there's also about two pages of introductory uh, material as well. 
Right, and I would say that this this verse, although it is this, uh, I should say this passage, this surah, even though it's very small, it is repeated by Muslims continuously. It it functions for Muslims in a way that's very similar, for example, to the Lord's Prayer in Christianity. And people have pointed out that there are some some similarities in terms of its tone and and the attitude it takes toward uh, toward God. Um, but it's uh, when Muslims pray every prayer has a certain number of cycles in it. So the morning prayer has two cycles in it, to be the, the content of the prayer itself. Sometimes people will do additional cycles, but there's two cycles in the morning prayer and four in the two afternoon prayers and three in the evening, I'm sorry, the, at sunset and four in the evening. And so the uh, each one of these cycles of prayer uh, includes and begins with a recitation of this passage. So this is something that every Muslim, even a small child, you know, by the age of three living in a household uh, where people are praying all the time, will be able, will just learn by heart from hearing it repeated so many times. And then Muslims say it at many other times as well. So it really is, it kind of defines um, and, it, and encapsulates the attitude of the human soul toward God from a Muslim perspective. Hmm. Joseph, what sticks out to you about this and, and what you uh, all elected to focus on in the in the uh, commentary? Well, I have to say it was really a, a, a privilege to work on this particular commentary. And as I went through the different uh, commentaries that are out there, um, uh, one of the reasons there are so many extensive commentaries is because there is uh, there are sayings attributed to the Prophet Muhammad which say that it is um, uh, the most important surah, and there's a famous saying uh, which says that everything uh, that is in the Quran is found in the Fatiha, and everything that is in the Fatiha is in the first s sentence of it, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim, in the name of God, the Compassionate, the Merciful, and everything that's in that is within the the bab that it begins that it be begins with. But as one goes through it, one really does see that there's a degree to which this is, uh, you can really see how this works. Because, for example, if you look at what is verse 3, the compassionate, the merciful, right before it, verse 2 says, praise be to God, the Lord of the worlds. Verse 4 says, master of the day of judgment. When you say that God is the Lord of the worlds, you are in saying that God encompasses all space. When you say that God is master of the day of judgment, you are alluding to the manner in which God, God governs all time. And when you are saying that God is the compassionate and the merciful right between those, it's a way of saying that God's compassion and God's mercy interpenetrates all space and all time. And that is one of the central messages, messages that you have throughout the entire Quran is that God is merciful and compassionate, that God wants to forgive, that God wants to even annul all of your sins, so long as you turn to God. As one verse of the, God, of the Quran says, God does not change what is in a people until they change what is in themselves. But part of the implication is that if you do change what is in yourself, that God will help you do that more and more and more as you progress.
That's Joseph Lombard. He's a professor in the Department of Arabic and Translation Studies at the American University of Sharjah. And we're also speaking with Maria Daycake today. She's associate professor and chair of Religious Studies Department at George Mason University. Thanks, both of you, for coming on the show. Um, The study Quran looks beautiful. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much for having us, Blair.